Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guest today is the great American singer and songwriter, Ricky Lee Jones. Hello, Ricky. Hello, I'm glad to be here. Hi, Andrew. It's very lovely to have you on the show. The sun shines in all of our windows. The same sun is shining on us. I am Ricky Lee Jones, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Ever since Ricky was a three-year-old kid, Basking in the applause she received as a snowflake in a ballet recital of Bambi, Ricky Lee Jones has wanted to be a great artist. Luckily for her and for us, her dream came true. A poet, a romantic, a multi-award winner, an author, a jazz stylist, she is responsible for such luminous, character-rich albums as 1981's Pirates, 1989's Flying Cowboys, 2003's The Evening of My Best Day, and 2015's The Other Side of My Desire. She is also an expert interpreter of the songs of others, as evidenced on such albums as 1991's Pop Pop, 2000's It's Like This, and her new collection, released on April the 28th, the slow burn, late night, jazz cool covers album, Pieces of Treasure. Yeah. Here she is interpreting the Comden and Green classic Just In Time, a song previously recorded by such fellow jazz greats as Peggy Lee, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, released on BMG Modern Recordings. Now you're here And now I know just where I'm going No more doubt or fear I found my way Cause love came just in time You found me just in time You changed my lonely life that Ricky, welcome. It's really lovely to have you here, especially with this album. Jazz as a as a label, as a genre, as a style, and almost maybe as a way of being seems integral to your identity. And you've said that singing these songs from the Great American Songbook was like meeting myself again after all these years. Could you maybe explain what you meant by that? Well, first, thank you. Thanks for all that. I like the slow burn description, late night slow burn. I I think that's um, ample for how incredibly actually slow everything is. And um, so I think the very first kind of PR thing that that uh, stuck with me was the jazz side of life, which I said in one of my first interviews with the LA Times, um, Robert Hilburn. And I think that that line was given to me by Chuck Weiss. He said, you have to say something they can grab onto and repeat. They're not going to write their own. They're going to write what you say. So either I thought about it or he said it, I think I'm giving him credit just because uh, I'm still alive and king. <laughs> but, but whatever, I said, we live on the jazz side of life, which was beautiful and also true. Yeah. And so I think that, that stuck uh, all these years. And I think it's interesting because you, the thing that you've said about where you, where you exist in a song, the way you kind of hang back on a song and kind of, 
is there's so much in your style that is kind of the has been learnt at the feet of jazz, so to speak. You know, I think invention is one of the invention is one of the what is it hallmarks identities characteristics of jazz and pop music is not and pop music is kind of more akin to opera in that it is written and to be played as written to be sung as already recorded whereas jazz you know the the song more or less is is an intention <laughs> and from there the players and singer have a conversation about yeah. it. In my case, I just had, um, I, I, I get depressed if I did it exactly the same way every night. And I love theater. I like walking over to my marker and, and having this event happen at the same time in a song. But I don't, but that would be theater. And if, if we were doing theater, I'd be right there. But when we're interpreting my or somebody's music, my show every night, that was just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I think that comes back to how I learned to sing, how I listened to my father sing. You don't think it's a very important thing at the time, but dad always sang it a little different every time he sang it. And so that was in me. Yeah. Okay, a little pause here to say that we found this wonderful snippet of Ricky singing in the very same room she's talking to us from today. And for me, this particular moment underlines what we've been saying about Ricky's ability to find a unique approach every time she interprets a song. It's never, ever the same. Hello, live from Ricky Lee's living room here in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is one of the first songs I wrote. In fact, I want to tell you a little bit about the songs. I wrote this song in 1977. I wrote Easy Money and Weasel and the White Boys Cool in the same couple of months. And Weasel was, um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Weasel was inspired by my friend, Sal Bernardi, this guy I'd met from New Jersey, who was unlike anybody in Venice. He had long black hair and really dark Italian. He stood out like a ruby in a black man's ear, walking down the boardwalk in Venice. And I took him home and made him peaches and cream. Sal was working in Nero's Nook in downtown. There's a really lovely booklet that comes with the new record where you break down the songs one by one, their sound, their lyricism, their kind of overt and subtle meaning, 
the lightness and space of the recording. And it, it seems to suggest to me that in order to be a great interpreter, you need to be a great listener. Um, you know, I think to be a great musician at all, you, you should be a great listener. They're not all. But if, you listen, if you're adept and you listen, you can respond with what you know in your fingers, right? You play and put them in the right place and you didn't plan it, which is what almost all players need to plan the phrase they're going to play even just before it. And even as they're playing, they're thinking about how they're going to end it. But if you're really listening to what I just said and you respond to it, then you don't plan and you trust that you'll know what to do. And that's when the really exciting music happens. Which brings us back to what you were saying earlier about it being a conversation. Yeah. So you're kind of, as you're, as you're playing, that the other players are listening to you and where you go. And so even if, like, say, you make a quote-unquote mistake, you can kind of, you can then turn that mistake into a little a motif and then you can kind of you know and play with that and develop that exactly. and so yeah and the audience hardly ever hears a mistake unless you're singing off key because you can't hear it. but odd notes um you know the uh, they can even over over emphasize it but odd notes are are even more exciting than because they're so unexpected yeah with, yes that's i mean that's probably the better term or the better phrase but the other thing I love about how you write about these songs is you come back to this idea of finding your way in how do I get inside that song and make it my own but also yeah. the idea of the song itself drawing you in like you kind of it's almost like you have to make this journey from the outside of the song to the inside of the song well, it has to become my song, yeah. and that's right, from the outside to the inside. But but when I sing it, it, it is as if I'm constructing it as I sing it. I experience them like a combination of, of architecture, and um, uh, it's a verb, <laughs> and it's a noun. You yeah. know, it's a thing that... So um, I I have to be able to make just in time my reality yeah. that the, all the things in my life led me to say this to you whoever it is I'm making up on the other side of the of the table so as long as I can do that and some of the lyrics you know in some of these beautiful melodies are cumbersome mm. like the lyrics of my one and only love that's a difficult uh, or love is a mini splendid thing or some of them are sappy and um and I am romantic, but to get to the point where I'd be sappy with somebody, okay, maybe for a line, but yeah. <laughs> to hold that for an entire verse, that's a challenge. So, you know, our, our personalities are very mutable, liable. We can reshape ourselves. So I can find a way in to say, you fill my eager heart with such desire every kiss. I give myself in sweet surrender. So that was the line that I tried to find the truth of the re rest of it from that, because I could see 
this point of view, you know, and you're having sex, giving yourself in sweet surrender. But it's a very intimate <laughs> thing to yeah. say, you know. And it might go right by people, but but for me to sing these lines, I really had to study it. I had learned it instrumentally from uh, Coleman Hawkins, a record oh, I had yes. the high and and then learned the words afterwards, and and resolved to sing it anyway, even though I was like kind of embarrassed. But then you're absolutely right. They the listener might not hear that exact point but what they hear is the fact that you now believe in the song that you're singing so you're not just kind of doing a, a rote cover of something but it's coming you found you've you've kind of found a point in the song to hold on to where you go i you know that has some relevance to me you know or something that yeah, yeah. if you can do that the song might live on past the Flurry of the release, and wouldn't that be great? Twenty-five years later, you're in Buenos Aires, and and then somebody loves that song that you yeah, did. Yeah, they love and they love your version of it. I'm absolutely. I'm always fascinated by the constant sort of reinterpretation of standards, which is kind of at the core of what jazz is, you know, and kind of an or how we thought it. You know, that's our impression of what we thought they thought when they were doing it. Yeah. It seems like the great players have turned it into pop in that they want to imitate a time already gone by yeah. that was new yeah. then yeah. and is so old and run over now. Yeah. Part of the thing has to be that it's a challenge and and it's new so how you know so you could you could put a just not that i would but you could make it electronica you could go somewhere that people go oh no never never but at least you're infusing something new like miles davis did when he when he did bitches brew yeah. you know something new of the time into you know the the, the never changing emotion that you feel for the song yeah if it's not you know Russ Teitelman said to me once I was working hard on a, a one of these songs like one for one for the road or something. Russ was I should explain to the listeners Russ is your producer on this album yeah and he said uh and I'd worked on this line just to you know dress it up a little bit and he said no 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 he said that's not true everything you've sung is true but that's not true. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, he's right. I worked on it and I have a nice little thing, but it, but it is, it's, it's intellectual. It's how to end this thing. It's, it's, so that's, that's a brilliant producer, but uh, I don't know why I'm there, but yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's funny that you say that because I have a little thing when I listen to music myself and it's almost like, it's like, do I believe them you know and it's kind of like and you kind of find yourself saying oh, I don't believe yeah. you I don't believe your investment in that lyric for example if we're talking about covers you know I don't you know I feel like you're just going going through it and I think that you know I think as much as I enjoy listening to the album I enjoyed reading your your thoughts on it your words on it because you know they 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 read like the words of a great lyricist but also a great interpreter and a great singer not everybody experiences the songs or they don't experience them so so deeply, either as a great listener like you or as a singer. 
they're singers and they're caught up in the technique, just like a guitar player is, is always, and he's not listening to me as much as he's listening to himself. And that's okay. That's those people. But for me and for real listeners who love the emotional experience of it, um, that that stuff just won't do. And I'm not sure about jazz people, if they're more concerned with technique or the emotional impact, because they try to pretend there's no audience, but we're talking to somebody. There are other people in the world. I, I'm, I'm diverting from a diversion, but but you can live a life that's all about yourself and you can say that's art or you can live a life that is about the people of the world and you can say and that's an extension my art is an extension of my heart yeah. and both are valid i feel like they're a thing of youth and, and age but if you're you know in the hierarchy of a kind of music that granted it was mostly instrumental or, or or regarded as a men playing instruments women are guests here <laughs> you can see how it got to be so intellectual but i think men have just as much emotion as women they express it um without quite as much drama i think but it's there and i think they should make room in their assessment of what is great music for the experience of emotion and not just whether or not you were totally precise going up or down the scale. You've mentioned another really important thing I think about the album is that you address how these, how interpreting these songs changes the, like the difference between like say a, a a person in their 20s or 30s singing it and a person in their you know 60s or you know kind of 70s or whatever that that there is these the lyrics stay the same but the meaning changes because of the the experience that the person has had and their experience of love their experience of relationships and so suddenly those those words haven't changed but somehow the meaning of the song does so a song like company i wrote and recorded on the first record wrote it before I yeah. had a record contract with my songwriting partner, Alfred Johnson. He's the composer of the chords, and we wrote the melody, and I wrote the lyrics. Um, a song like that, Russ was enchanted with that song. He thought that, that I was like Roberta Flack, which to him means um, a deep resonance a, a, no affectation, a true, um, a true performance. And I, you know, yeah. I, I, it's taken many years for me to understand the comparison, but, um, I, and so with that song, I had a lot of subtleties to my voice and, and there'd been a lot of heartbreak. I don't know if you have to have a broken heart to be able to sing a broken heart. You know, you, you're a singer, but in my case, as Years went by, my whole way of being has changed, and I am a less narcissistic human being. So when I sing a song, I'm singing it with that expanse. When I was younger, mm. 
and, and you know, rock stars have to be looking at themselves in so many ways, I guess. But it was about me listening to my voice. How did I go? See you in another life. I can't end that no well anymore. But um, now I would go, I would talk to you and say, "Well, I'll see you in another life." And then singing quietly that way. Hopefully, if I was if it was later in the day, but hopefully you would hear <laughs> so much undertext that that's part of who I am now and part of what I'm thinking about you. So while you might lose a little bit in technique and timber, you gain milestones in your um, in, in the acceptance people have of themselves as they age. That comes out in the sound yes. of of their voice, and so it's a whole other experience, I think, to listen to an older singer. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. In a way, you've kind of brought in a perfect record. Um, another great lyricist, interpreter, vocalist, and poet, and the record you've brought in is Veed and Fleece by Van Morrison. His eighth studio album, released on Warner Brothers in November 1974. Really? The eighth? Wow. Yeah. So my question is, when would you have first heard this record? Well, my first experience, of course, were the were the brown-eyed girl, which enchanted yeah. me. And then somebody, we were smoking pot in Eugene, Oregon, and I think I probably, I was hitchhiking around it, so I probably had heard it, but I was 16 years old, and they put on... Um, Astro Weeks. Yeah. So I'd heard some things from Moon Dance, but hadn't heard the record. They put on Astro Weeks, and about the second or third time, my world changed. And you know, I understand now that he's in. You know, he had the modern jazz quartet interpreting his already interesting. You know, Gaelic lyric things. So with the sound of his voice, which we've already imprinted at 12 about, you know, I'm going to meet you down, <laughs> down in the back in the grass. And, and yeah. so it was a powerful reaction. And um, I didn't understand, you know, it's not that I, I didn't love it, but I didn't understand, mm. you know, there was nothing happening like that. And it was, it was pop music um, constructed like this. And, uh, when he sings slim slow slider waiting cause she rides yeah so he's singing way behind the beat and and it and it takes you everywhere you need. so it was a life changing thing and i don't think i heard, i had to go seek out the other work there's no internet, right? So you go to the record store and you don't have much money. So you pick the one with the, with the cover that you think is going to take you where you want to go. So I took Veed and Fleece because he was there with great big dogs in a castle. Yeah. This is going to go somewhere. If it, Yeah, you, th you look at that cover and you think, if it sounds anything like that cover, I've, yeah, I'm happy. 
It's a goofy cover, you know. Yeah. It's like his, there's always something wrong with his apparel, you know. On oh yeah. St. Dominic's Tribune, <laughs> like his seams are coming out in his pants and stuff. And so he always and he does that with the, with everything about his album. He brings something flawed and unexpected into the perfect framework that he's created for himself, and lets you see. And in and in fact, that flaw is going to be one of the reasons that all that beauty is so magnificent. And I don't usually say that. I don't think a flaw for flaw's sake is is the way is. But we have them. Mm. And so, you know, he comes right out there with his uh, with his ripped pants and, and killed it. <laughs> what was it that struck you about this particular album? The singing first is magnificent. But also, he's telling us a story that is not quite this nor that. I I feel, I don't know what I think, we're in a weird Western town <laughs> of dreams. And he starts out in a parlor with his hand in his vest on a Sunday morning singing for a small ensemble of people. And, um, and he tells this to this beautiful repeated melody, this poetry that I haven't read enough of people like Blake or anything, but that's probably like the poets he mentions in the album. And um, and and then he says this, um, and he wouldn't abide, you know, any kind of disrespect, so he cleaved their heads off with a hatchet. Lord, he was a drinking man, which is a pretty funny line after you've just cut somebody's head off. So... I was caught, and then just a few seconds later, uh, uh, and he loved the little children like they were. He said, someday it may get lonely. Now he's living, living with a gun. Oh, ain't it lonely when you're living with a gun? So the next song, it, so he's taking you into a play, the point of view of the guy who's living with the gun. And and again, wondrous lyrics that you, you can't make sense of. Uh, they put his fingers yeah. in the glass. What does that mean? They put his fingers in the glass. Yeah, astonishing. We should, maybe let's pause and, and play a little bit of that and the haunting and beguiling Lyndon Arden Stole the Highlights, written by Van Morrison and released on Warner Brothers Records. But you found out what they were drinking Met them face to face outside Cleaved their heads off with a hat Lord, it wasn't drinking, man When somebody tried to get a bomb, he just took the law into his own hand. I think that thing you said about how you feel that he's telling you a story, but it, there's not enough detail for it to hang together. There's something magical and mysterious about it. So you have these little moments that you can hold on to. Like the bit that you mentioned, which yeah, goes yeah. from Lyndon Arden stole the highlights into the track, Who Was That Masked Man? And he repeats that line, living, living with a gun. And so you feel there's a narrative yeah. there. But then, then there's other points where you, you can't hold on to it. You lose it. 
And it's kind of, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about that sense of like wanting to get inside the song, like to being pulled inside and sort of trying to figure out what its magic is. It's hard to say with this one. I've, I've listened so long. I thought, did he lose interest in the narrative or did he go to the side? Because at one point he's he's telling you the story and then another one, he is a character telling the and the character is speaking. But after the third song, what's that third song on the side one? The third song is, hang on, you know what? I've got the record just here, so I'm just going to go and grab it. Hang on. Right, so we've got... Fair Play is the first track, then it's Lyndon Arden Stole the Highlights, then Who Was That Masked Man, then Streets of Arklo, and then You Don't Pull No Punches, But You Don't Push the River. You you say on your album it doesn't start with uh, Lyndon Arden? No, it starts with Fair Play. And mine, Fair Play was the third song. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think if I had... Yeah, I have I have the album. Oh, odd. But anyway, it probably doesn't matter. That's, it adds another layer of mystery to it. <laughs> but Fair Play <laughs> is the third song. Well, anyway, whatever the order is, the first three songs are an enchanted Western thing. And when he says Fair Play to you, oh, shoot. You're right. It was the first song. Hello, fair play to you. And we're walking yeah. here in the architecture I'm taking in, and we got a pun. Yeah. Tell me, oh, Paul, Oscar Wilde at the row. So that's just one little passage. And and in just those notes, he's <laughs> he just he's done more than I had heard before. And then he follows it with another and another in his, uh, you know, his finesse and wild choices as a singer, garbling those fantastic words he's saying and finding notes to put them on. That's why you can't always understand him because he's opting for the melody over enunciation. Yes. And I, I learned to sing that way. So on, on the record that we're going to talk about, my new record, I really enunciate everything. It was a new experience for me, but I like using the instrument, uh, the voice as an instrument the way that Van does. And in Veden Fleece, he seems to be offering forgiveness on and on and on. Even in the guy who, you know, kills somebody and, and the people who take him away and the girl, whoever he's talking to about, uh, Hi-ho, silver, tit for tat. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? I never heard that before, tit for tat. I'd never heard that. And I love you for that. So that, what are you talking about? <laughs> and only Van Morrison would say, hi-ho, silver, tit for tat, and I love you for that. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm just like uh, shining, have little suns coming out of my eyes talking about him, but I don't know if I'm able to to express what I learned from his um, unconventional choices and and high art melodic uh, his vocal abilities, but 
Yeah. Because there's nothing he does that any, you know, later he started trying to bring more Muddy Waters or Ray Charles. He had some mm. kind of point he wanted to make that that's the school he came from. But when he leaves that point behind and just sings, all the, the stuff he learned that comes out of him is brand new and different. I think he started thinking too much. A little bit of background, maybe, for the, the listeners. Um, it's in 1973, um, after seven years away from Ireland, he went he went back with his new fiancée, uh, Carol Guida. He just got divorced. He didn't go back to Belfast, but he toured Southern Ireland, wrote some songs. Many of them, he insists, were just stream of consciousness, explorations, insta- inspired by Gestalt theory, apparently, the whole idea that the whole is greater than the than it's the sum of its parts. He recorded them quickly and informally in his home studio in California, often as a first take. And then I, rec- I think he recorded two or three songs in New York, and they have quite a different feel to the rest of the album. You know, we're saying that like there's a shift in mood mm-hmm. on the album. But on the whole, it's right. this, I mean, for me, it's this kind of very moody, brooding album. But you, but you know, we were saying about the romantic, it's deeply romantic and pastoral. But like you, I love the fact that it's also elusive and strange that I can't put my finger on what is being told or whether these songs are linked to each other or not. And the fact that there seems to be almost the first side almost seems to be a concept album and then that goes with the second side, you know, something of that is lost. And so I've hesitated putting it on lists because for me, the first three and maybe four songs are some of the greatest music I'd ever heard, but it didn't hold up in its concept and possibly also in the in the songs themselves. They didn't go in as deeply. But I thought it doesn't matter. If you hit, if you touch yeah. heaven even for a moment, then you get you get to be on the I Touched Heaven <laughs> list. And I'm right in thinking that you met him, didn't you, at a, a music music festival in Ireland in the early 80s? Yes, I did. And um, for maybe people who haven't read your fantastic memoir, Last Chance Texaco, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that meeting and how strange it was? Sure. There are some things in life that make you feel like you've been delivered instead of <laughs> grooved to the to that day. You were just delivered there, and um, this is one of them because he he's one of the few art. He's the only artist I traveled to another country to see, or, and um, but you know you can tell he has a deep place in my heart, um, in my teenage libido as well as my musical exploration. So I was living in Paris, I think it was 1982 or one or three. And um, yeah, two or three probably. And he was going to be at a, a festival. And so I flew. And this is part of the story, you know, experiencing Ireland for the first time, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, taxi drivers, revolutionaries. And then I get delivered out near Galway, where it's where I, that's where I think um, think think I was going, and I travel for hours. Then the next day in a cab to to the site 
And uh, and they say, we can't go any further. You have to walk the next mile or two to the festival. So I get out, and it and it's midday or later in the day, and uh, I have a little flask of whiskey and pack of cigarettes, leather jacket, and I'm walking, and um, a Volkswagen appears. There, there are people walking, too, on this country road. A Volkswagen appears, and, and I thought there were no cars allowed. And, the, and a man, I guess it was, looked out of the window and said, do you want a ride? I'm trying to find a way to do an Irish <laughs> accent that's that's un- under- non-understandable. But I, I hesitated, and I thought, well, you know, it's got to go slow. It's a little thing, and how odd. So I said, okay. I got in the passenger side, and right away, it was a wrong move. But, but there's part of me that went, but stay in as long as you can, because you don't have to walk in the floor. Um, and he was asking me where I was from, and I said, and where are you from? And he said, far, far from here. And I was like, but it was, he said, it was like, well, what do you mean, far, far from here? And then he put his hand on my knee, and I said, you don't want to do that. And he squeezed it harder. So I thought, oh, well, that that bluff didn't work. So I just said, I'll just let him drive along with his hand on my knee, I guess. And um, I'm going to have to look for a place to get out soon. But he sped up. And now there were yards, meters, where there were no people. So he was able to speed up. And um, I thought, well, hmm, <laughs> this wasn't the adventure I came for. And there was a cluster of people up here. And he slowed down a little bit, but not enough. And he hit one of them and um, didn't hit him hard. I can't remember if he knocked him down, but it took his attention away from me. And I was able to jump out of the car. The the people were yelling at him, and I slipped away, drove away. All right, so now the sun is near setting, and uh, there's the backstage. It's a long story. This is the preview. <laughs> there's the back, the back entrance, and I said to the guard with great trepidation, because once you've done this and they've gone, I don't know who you are. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to ever do oh, it yeah. again, but I said, I'm Ricky Lee Jones. Do you think I could get in? And um, he said, let me check. And then they let me in. And they were, they, the various people back there were very nice. And um, Van went right on stage. And I'm just trying to remember if I met any of the band before. But And he did a good show. I'd seen him once or twice and saw him many times since. And this is one of the only shows he ever turned and looked at the audience and he and some punk rocker got up and started hopping around the stage with him and I always like to imagine it was Sinead but it's probably just a punk rocker and he allowed her to do that and he he was happy Mm. he actually looked happy and then the show was over because there were no lights um you know for the night and he came back and now it turned into a, a, a grade school dance. It was the dance at the gym. He was back there. I mean, my middle school heart was going up pitter-patter, pitter-patter, because there he was standing. And he was 
and he was looking at me through people. I was talking to his horn player, Isaac Isham, Mark Isham, who was a really nice mm. guy. And um, and so for whatever ever reason, Van must have thought it was safe. So he walks right over to me and says, hello. And he said, do you want a coffee? Can I get you a coffee? And um, I, I didn't want him to go anywhere, but I said, sure, yeah, I'll get a coffee. And so he went and got a coffee and then came back and handed me that coffee. And that was my Beatle moment where I was going, how do I hide this cup? How do I take this cup home? <laughs> and so we drank our coffee and we had a nice talk. And now people were getting ready to go. And Mark Isham said, great to meet you. When you come back to L.A., give me a call. I'd like, and so I was like standing there like a 12-year-old girl or a 14-year-old runaway. And the van has gotten in the big bus. Van has gotten in his limousine. And he hears or saw, I'm not sure, uh, Mark got out of the bus and said, do you need a ride? And I said, yeah, I do need a ride. And he said, well, come on the bus with us. And I think Van heard that. that he, he just needs cues to know what to do. So as he was roll, going by, he rolled down his window and he said, do you want a ride? And so, you know, like, yes. <laughs> so I got in and then, well, his story keeps getting better and better. And um, we're driving through, it's a long, it's going to be an hour to the hotel where hopefully I'll be able to get a room. We start talking about journalists. And um, I don't know what had happened, but something had happened with him and the journalist. And he said, you know, I hate it when they ba-da-da-doodly-do or da diddly dadly do And I said, yeah, I know, but do you think that maybe... And that was it. You could see the blood leave his head. By, by taking on any point of view, he saw me as the journalist. He was angry. And he, and he got so angry at me. And I was trying to go backwards, like, how, how do I unsay that? You know, I'll kill him for you, man. <laughs> how do I unsay I, I wasn't able to unsay it. And then when he was done spitting out how angry he was, he stopped talking. And so we sat in silence for 20 or 25 minutes, maybe. Um, and that was hard. Because, you know, like anybody, but especially me, I, I had real self-esteem mm. problems, and uh, it didn't take much to just make me feel like I was nothing, especially going from so high to, to you know, I don't never even want to look at you again. And so we walked into the lobby and I was able to get a room. And I was always aware of him listening to everything, watching everything, but not participating. I got my room, thank God. But I couldn't sleep. It was like being breaking up with a lover. Mm. It, you know, it's it really visceral for me. 
and in the and um, Mark. So I think I came out at some point just to get a little love, you know. And the band was there, and uh, he said, "Don't worry about it. He does that stuff all the time. He's totally unpredictable." I said, well, "When are you guys? When are you leaving?" And he said, "We're leaving early at seven or so." And so because I couldn't sleep, I got up just to sit there when they were leaving. And, the, and there's lots of nice goodbyes from Mark and other people in the band. And they all got on the bus going to the airport. And Van, I think he was on the bus, and he got back out, and he wrote down something and handed me a piece of paper and said, if you're ever in London, give me a call. So that, so that, so yes, confetti falls from every rooftop. Um, <laughs> but you write, I mean, in the book, you, you say, you just, you, you capture, I think, the essence of it. I think it's one of the best descriptions of Encounter with Van Morrison. Oh, I always forget about the leprechaun part. Sorry. Oh, gosh, sorry. Yes, sorry. Tell, tell, tell the listeners the leprechaun part, and then I want to say my little thing. So, yes, so you told Van about this encounter with the man driving the Volkswagen. That's right. In the car, in the, in the limo, I told him about getting a ride from the guy who wouldn't let me out and said he was from far, far away. And Van said, well, you met a leprechaun. And um, and when it made total sense because he didn't, you know, he was long and spidery and spindly. What's he doing in a Volkswagen? What's he doing on the road where no people are allowed? And, and, he, and he picks me up and delivers me right where I'm supposed to go. So maybe I did. You're expecting Van to then joke, and he was deadly serious, wasn't he? he was deadly serious, yeah. yeah. I know everybody laughs, but yes. And my father had, you know, my little experience with the Irish, because we, we, I was told I was Irish growing up, um, was that all that magical stuff was real. Yeah. So when Van said, you met a leprechaun, with a straight face, I was like, okay, <laughs> I met a leprechaun. Thank God I'm here. And that's the part of the story that's the most magical, even more magical than meeting the leprechaun, is that Van Morrison told me I met a yeah. leprechaun. Incredible, incredible. <laughs> but the bit I wanted to stay, say is you, you you talk about him and you say he was driven by a storm he could not control. And I just think that is kind of, that sums him up. I, in, I interviewed him a couple of years ago and it was going, I'd done all my prep on how Van Morrison interviews can go badly and how he can get cross with interviewers. So I'd done all my prep and I, I thought, I'm not going to ask him any why questions. He hates why questions. I'm not going to ask him the meanings of any of his lyrics. I'm just going to talk to him about his influences, the, the musicians he likes and all that kind of stuff. And it was all going fine. And then I'd, I'd read somewhere that Gary Sherman at Bang Records had 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 an influence on the, his early style. So I just said, oh, you know, kind of, so tell me a bit about Gary Sherman. And he just kind of looked at me, like, like the journalism response to you, he just kind of looked at me and the, the blood went out of his face and he just sort of went, Gary Sherman? <laughs> Gary Sherman? 
And it was just, <laughs> and literally at that point, because there was, he always has to have a press officer in the room while you're interviewing him. The press officer suddenly looked terrified and she said, Oh, I, th I think that's the end of the interview. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're 45 minutes are up now. And they, and so, and I had, and I had to, and that, so I had to say, I don't think that was 45 minutes. I don't think, and I, and I, you know, I do have some other questions to ask. And again, the shift, he kind of went, oh, well, how long do you need? You know, and there was, yeah, so exactly that, yeah. that kind of shift that you experienced. Yeah. I experienced almost exactly the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely bizarre. But I mean, the, the, I like the fact that you told the story about the leprechaun because that that's there's something in Veed and Fleece that has that kind of that mystery. There's a haunting riddle like quality to that album, I think, isn't there? Well, his assurance, his confidence that what he's saying is the truth. Yes. Makes that magical stuff true. When you hear it, you, you really get to go to Van's world when he sings, and and you're safe from, you know, the scars and wounds that he gets from his own internal storm that, you know, make him lash out here in the real world, but in his pretend world, where he where he is his best version of himself, he puts that in music and uh that's that's the best place to meet him i think i i just don't think i've ever heard anyone describe it better than the way you've just described it there ricky i think that was perfect okay oh, that's, that's a perfect little note to end on it's just been absolute joy to talk to you and about van and about your own music and about interpretation and song it's been great so thank you so much thank you you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Now we come to the part of the show where I welcome Mojo Associate Editor Jenny Bully back to the podcast and we review two of the best new records of the week. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it just like, suddenly sounded like I had a little radio show there. All right. So what's your record, Andrew? My choice for this week, Jenny, is Jump On It. It's the new release by the San Francisco-based guitarist and composer Bill Orcutt. Now, if listeners know Bill at all, it is either as a former member of the ferocious 1990s post-hardcore trio Harry Pussy, or in more recent years as a kind of practitioner of a... I don't know how you describe it, a stuttering, cut-up, instrumental blues guitar style. His new album, his first on acoustic guitar since A History of Everyone 10 years ago, is, I would say, arguably his most beautiful release ever, because he is a guitarist who kind of works in the world of kind of dissembling and noise and kind of discordance. And unlike previous records, it's warm, it's intimate, reverby, conversational, but still pointedly unpolished and raw. It's, I suppose I'd say it's a deceptive record. Because of the lightness of sound, it might first seem pretty or simple, but I think the more you listen to it, you, the more you realize there's this kind of complex technique at work that's got nothing to do with like 
folk tradition and is more kind of rooted in sort of blues and noise. Um, I'm going to play a little snippet from um, a track called The Life of Jesus, written by Bill Orcutt and released on Palalalia Records. listen but I know you've had this conversation with Ian Harrison on this podcast before but I have my reservations about improv music like to listen to at home particularly I'm not sure I've got the patience when you know there might be people there might be other people who would say this sounds like someone tuning up and the song never starts you know that Mm. sort of improv is quite um you know you need patience for it whereas if you actually watch that stuff live, it's really mesmerising. And you were talking earlier about his being more in a tradition of experimental blues guitarists. And, mm. you know, I, I've seen the guitarist Derek Bailey, who I believe is R.I.P. now, isn't he? Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, and absolutely loved it. And it's a similar kind of template, isn't it? It's experimental music played on acoustic guitar. Um, and there's no denying that he has incredible chops. I mean, you know, it's impressive stuff. But do I want to listen to it? I'm, I'm not sure I do. I think it's it's interesting because I think probably the most um, like offensive thing you could say to maybe somebody like Bill Orcutt, Orcutt or a fan of Bill Orcutt, maybe yes. to be more accurate, is the word ambient, you know, because it suggests a kind of, you know, non-important background music perhaps. But I find that kind of... Can you hear my dog? That was kind of my dog um, dreaming and wagging her tail very loudly in the background. Sorry about that. Um, that almost if you have it kind of just maybe below the level that you'd listen to something more kind of structured or poppy or something or kind of melodic or kind of so la- or loud. It's almost like kind of I think the volume you listen to it at is quite important. I had this record on today and I wasn't and it was almost kind of like at an ambient level. So it became and kind of not trying not to fo- not trying to follow it, I think is also important. Kind of not going, okay, where am I in this? What's it doing? You know? Yeah. And just kind of almost kind of giving into it as a kind of an atmosphere or something. Kind of it's like I'm not listening to it going, okay. Bill's doing something complex here. What's he trying to do? You know, which I suppose if I'm, I was reviewing the record, I would be. But I think there's a difference between like reviewing it for the purposes of writing a review for you in the mag and actually having it on as something, you know, beautiful and complex and enjoyable that's kind of part of the atmosphere of the house. Absolutely. Which is kind of probably how I'd listen to it. It's, it's funny you should say that because, you know, the, the, with the live thing, and I never saw Harry Pussy, but I saw a lot of bands like that. And mm. that it's, it has an immersive quality, that yes, kind of that... noise. And, and that's where the pleasure comes from for me. You get absorbed by it, which is sort of the opposite of what you're saying here, where you let it wash over you in a more subliminal way. 
But I think the two the two are quite similar in the sense that with neither with both of them you're kind of not at that position where you're kind of listening in the way that you would a sort of structured melodic piece of music. You're either kind of you're immersed in it at a noise level or it kind of surrounds you at an ambient level. It's kind of like, but I think in a way we're both saying the same thing, that kind of the level at which you listen to it, either just below or just above where you would normally listen to music is kind of, I think is really important. And weirdly, it's not a thing that you kind of tend to talk about, is it? Kind of the loudness or the level. No, no. And how kind of integral it is. And I guess what we're saying is you don't you don't need your brain wired differently to enjoy improv music, but the, maybe the setting is important. Yeah, I think and so. Individual. Yeah, and, or and also your expectations yeah. of it as well. I think kind of sometimes there's this idea that like, oh, I'm not getting this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like I do, I'm missing something. I'm missing the point. I'm not. You know, kind of, a, you might go to see something, you think, oh, clearly everyone's cleverer than me because I don't understand this, and they obviously do. And I, I genuinely doubt whether they're, you know, they're hearing something that I'm not. I think there's just a real sense in, like, kind of where you place yourself within the sound mm. and where, and, and kind of what you, whether what you hope to get out of it is just something kind of sensual and kind of to do with just its effect on you rather than something intellectual. I think initially I thought that this record fitted with that kind of the sort of descendants of John Fahey and the American primitive guitarists and and but as you say there's no kind of rootsy baggage no. to this it's and if the if it has roots I think the roots more reside in the blues you know and kind mm. of and also, and noise so and those are the two kind yeah. of elements that are feeding in much more than yeah as you say, that kind of guitar solly kind of folk yeah. style. Yeah. Jenny, what's your new album choice for this week? My new album is uh, the wonderful Jana Horn, and her record, The Window is the Dream, is on No Quarter Records, which is home to many great things like Joan Shelley and Nathan Salzberg and, you know, all things that this podcast likes. Uh, and this record for me opens... Uh, with her voice and a vibraphone on a song called Leaving Him. And I personally love a vibraphone. I'm just, I'm immediately in. It's kind of warm and weird at the same time and summery. Is is it just me or are all records with vibraphones on for hot weather? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's it. It's it's the rule, I think. It is the rule, it is. So, you know, and from there on it kind of slowly builds and it's echoey and shimmery and... You know, there's a little bit of uh, Tim Buckley's Happy Sad with that sort of mood, if not anything else. It's not jazzy particularly, but it does have that warm and weird mood. It's just wonderful. And she has the best diction, doesn't she? She has this lovely kind of clear, quiet voice. And there's so much detail in her lyrics. I, I believe she is an academic. She She's a postgraduate teacher of uh, creative writing and fiction. And that makes perfect sense because she she sings like somebody who's kind of holding every word up to the light and, you know, seeing what's in it, which I guess is what you do if you analyse poetry and books all day. But, and yeah. short, I mean, she writes short stories as well and kind of her, her songs have that quality. They really have the do. quality of a short story. Um, what was the, the track that you singled out? Should we, we should play a little bit of it. Uh, it's the opening track and it's called Leaving Him and... The intro alone is, you know, sold me. 
Perfect. This is Leaving Him, written by Jana Horn and taken from The Window is the Dream on No Quarter Records. When you get up and go When you are not thinking straight And you need somewhere to be And you look up to the I interviewed uh, Jana last year for you and um, when I was talking to her about this forthcoming record she said and the reason I think it's worth mentioning is I I'd like to ask you whether you can hear these influences in the record she said she was influenced by Silver Apples The Raincoats and a tape of 50,000 full fans can't be wrong. Wow. That she played over and over again in her car after the radio broke. Wow. I haven't written those things down in my impressions (laughs) of the record, but that means nothing because, as we know, influences can be like vibrations, Andrew. It doesn't mean it has to sound like that. That can just be where it takes you. It's kind of like what I was saying about the opening track. It it makes me feel like Tim. I'm listening to Tim Buckley's Happy Sad, but it doesn't sound like yeah. Tim Buckley's Happy Sad. Anyway, but she did men- sorry, sorry. She, she did mention two things that she got from those records, and I think mm-hmm. those you can hear that in it. And she talked about the importance of repetition and simplicity, and you know this yeah. idea of like the the secure feel of the repeated phrase. And just and also, she said she was intru- influenced by Western esotericism as well. Oh. And it's just kind of there's the thing I love about her is the fact that there is simultaneously a simplicity and an intelligence going on in these records. Definitely, you know, you can kind of you hear kind of somebody who has learned to not put any extraneous details in in a record. Mm. But at the same time, the details that she does leave in are absolutely fascinating. They are. Like, you know, like we were saying, just about the little kind of instrumental colorings that are going on or mm. just a little turn of phrase in the lyrics. The, and I really like the way her voice kind of cuts across the music sometimes so she'll be singing a melody while the guitar is doing something much more kind of intricate or rhythmic you know they're not following the same melody and I guess that's that's quite a prog thing to do but yeah but you know all good there and I think the band are are great here I know that she wrote a lot of these songs in Charlottesville Virginia where she is at the university um but then the recording, she went to a studio in Austin in Texas because she's from Texas and, you know, was on that music scene early on. And there's a great guitarist on this and his his name is Jonathan Horn, spelt differently, no relation, presumably. Um, and I think the guitar is really great on this record. Um, I think the other thing that as well, I, I want to go back to that thing you said about the power of her diction. One of the, the other yeah. things that we talked about was her love of a uh, album um, by a German singer called Sybil Bayer. Okay, yeah. And that was uh, 
a record that was re- reissued a couple of years ago um, with the help of um, Jay Maskis uh, from Dinosaur. It was basically a tape, a home recorded tape that this woman had, had made of songs that she sang at night in her kitchen. And there's a particular way that she says the word tonight. And Jana Horn pointedly copied Sybil Bayer's diction for that particular word. And we actually talked about the importance of that. So it's really interesting that you raised the, the thing about her diction because it's obviously integral yeah. to her love of music and her love of singers and everything is like the yeah, particular and unique way a certain singer might pronounce a particular word. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, it draws you in. I mean, I think some of my favourite voices are have that kind of particular diction. I'm trying to think historical examples. But, you know, even someone like Suzanne Vega and modern singers like Aldous Harding, you know, they are they really do pronounce words beautifully and and it makes for a very different experience it's, it's just great yeah it's kind of it brings a kind of little individual quality to it something unique and even if it's not the way that you might pronounce it it means that there's a kind of just that little idiosyncratic quality that kind of yes. makes it special no, that's lovely. i think i mean I, I was a huge fan of the first album that she brought out mm. and i think I think this one is even better. I love it when you kind of get excited about a record yeah. and then and there's that part of you, isn't there, that's been disappointed in the past and you think, oh, well, obviously the next one won't, won't be up to this because it might just be the, all she had was that one album in her. Yeah. And no, this one, is, this one is even better. I absolutely love there's it. A, there's a really interesting... It's what you were saying about the um, esoteric philosophy that she'd been getting into and or mysticism and there's a single off this record called The Dream, which is a key song, I think. It's an incredible incredible song and there's a lovely lyric in it about uh, happiness is in the mind sight is in the mind's eye which is total like and she has a reading list that comes with this record as in the books that she was listening to and I think I'm I think I'm inferring that it was during lockdown because she said she wrote Mm. a lot of the songs in one room and she didn't have much access to music because she has an old laptop and no streaming services, and her car stereo had broken, which as she yes, said of course, you, hence the fall. Yeah. So she was reading a bunch of books, and one of them was the Gita, you know, the the Hindu epic mm. poetry, which is in Sanskrit. I imagine she's so clever; she probably is reading it in Sanskrit, which part of the the what's it, the Mahabharata, Mahabharata. That, that, yeah, Mahabharata. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. That's cool impressive, is that? isn't it? Bag, Bag, Bag Vita, Vita, yeah. 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 So no, how brilliant is that? I mean, yeah. I, th- I think more musicians and singers should release reading lists with their new record. Yes. I, I mean, I, 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 that's my description of it. I think she just told the person doing the bio what she'd been reading because they said, no, what records have you been listening to? And she said, none. So, she, so okay, okay. What books yeah. have you been reading? Yeah, yeah. It used to. I mean, it used to be a question that when like I did more regular interviews, it used to be a question that I would regularly put into interviews purely to just increase my own reading list of just like if I could just find one. Yeah. That would be you know. Oh, well, you, and you're I remember, like this then. Sorry. Oh, so you're going to have to send it to me. It says here, Clarice Lispector. Do you know her? Oh yeah, yeah. No, Clarice Lispector. Yeah. Wow, she's, this is all highfalutin yeah. stuff. Italio yeah. Calvino, Louis Bourget, yeah. and the Gita. So. Yeah, very good. 
Very good. So which um, which book by Borges was she reading? Does... I'm afraid she does not specify, so you might have oh, to... Oh, um, come on. You yeah, I'm going to have to have a word with her about that. Send a question that. via the PR. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think um, I'm very happy that you chose that record. I think it's, um, I think not just um, one of the best albums of the last fortnight, I think it's going to be one of my records of the year. Yeah, I think mine Definitely. too. I think, I think it's just going to get under my skin. And I think like a lot of deceptively simple records that aren't simple at all, mm. I think it's just going to be one that I keep coming back to. Well, so it's a real trick you. to pull off, isn't it, to make something sound simple when actually the arrangement's quite complicated and that's what she yeah. does beautifully. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. All I need to say is you have been listening to Ricky Lee Jones, Jenny Bully, and myself, Andrew Mayo. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And please look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club with me. Ricky Lee Jones and Jazzy the dog. Take it easy there, Jazzy. Who was that masked man?